is Gerard Fox, and this is a very exciting moment because I am one of the top trial lawyers in the entire country trying every type of case for all sizes of businesses at my very modern progressive firm where we lowered our rates to half of what they were when we were at the big firms with whom we compete with regularly, and we don't charge for initial analysis, and we are absolutely cost-effective. We do not bonus our lawyers for billable hours. We make sure that our attorneys are efficient and add value. So you're going to be talking to one of the most listening and talking in the future when we have call-in to one of the most preeminent lawyers in our country. And we're going to take the lid off of the practice of using lawyers. I wrote a book called Sue the Bastards, which taught the average person and business owner how to use lawyers and law firms effectively. And today's session is going to begin with us talking about how to file a music copyright case and how to do so cost-effectively. I am honored to have as my first guest, Lauren Green, a partner in our music and entertainment and trial and litigation practice. She's a graduate from the University of Illinois College of Law, cum laude, in 2010. Give it up for Chicago. She has spent the last 10 years developing an expertise in music, entertainment, and intellectual property litigation. Her background as a classically trained musician gives her a unique insight into music litigation and often enables her to conduct a preliminary musicology analysis for our clients. Lauren, how are you doing today? Hey, Jerry, it's great to be here, and I'm just honored to be the first guest on your podcast. Well, we're going to go over, for the person who's listening, how to bring a music copyright case and how to do it cost-effectively. And I should tell you that Lauren and I both go way back. We love musicians. We love artists. We've done so many cases for artists that are in the news. You can go to our website, www.gerardfoxlaw.com, and you can see all the musicians that we've represented, and some of those cases are in the papers. So, Lauren, first of all, how do you register a song if you've created a song? And there's lots of people, young and old, who are now creating music. They have the programs at home to do it, and they want to protect their music. How do they register it for copyright protection? Well, the registration process is actually pretty straightforward, and it's something that you know most people should be able to do through the power of the Internet these days. Just go to the Copyright Office's website. There's a lot of tutorials that will show you how to register, they'll walk you through the process. And basically you go to the website, you fill out the form, you submit the application fee and you're registered. One thing that I'll, I'll note, the copyright attaches whether or not you register a work. So the moment you write a song, the moment you record you know, your short film or some sort of music video, there's a copyright that attaches to that the moment it's fixed in a tangible media. The protection of the copyright law allows you to sue people and recover what's called statutory damages as a part of that lawsuit. Now, but what's the advantage of registering your song for copyright protection? Right. So the advantage of, of registration is if you were to bring a lawsuit, you'd be entitled to what's called statutory damages. And you have to be registered with your copyright before you can get those type of damages. But also, you know, it then becomes publicly available for people to research and see that your song is copywritten. So let's say there's another artist who, you know, wants to write a song called whatever name of the song they choose, they can search that 
a name in the copyright office's website and they'll come up with your song and then they can go and check to see if they're potentially infringing on, on your copyright. So it allows the public to know that, hey, you have this work. And so they're kind of on notice that you're the owner of the song. And it allows you also to get certain types of damages at trial, correct? That's right. Yes. You can only recover statutory damages if your copyright is registered before you file your lawsuit. Okay. And that's very important. So it's a small step. It can be done by the songwriter themselves by going to the copyright office website and paying some small fee. And very important to put others on notice. Your work, you know, having represented artists, Lauren, for so long, the songs come out of them like babies. They're their babies and they want to protect them. They're proud of them. You know, they put a lot of effort into something that's an original work. So let's talk about standing. Standing and not standing in line, but there's a legal term called standing to bring a copyright case. And that means that you have to be the person who has the bundle of rights to be able to bring the suit. And because often songs are created by groups who collaborate, there is an issue of making sure you have the right people we're going to bring the suit. Maybe you can talk a little bit about this, Lauren. Yes, thank you. And standing is, you know, it's the threshold issue for any time you're thinking about bringing a copyright litigation lawsuit. And the first step for any songwriter or any artist is to take a look at their publishing agreement and their recording agreement, because oftentimes what the publishers and the labels do is in the agreement, they will take the sole ability to bring a suit on behalf of any song written underneath that agreement. So if you are the songwriter, and you feel like there's another work that infringes your song, if you want to sue them, you often have to check with your publisher or label first to see if they want to bring the suit. Now, a lot of times there's ways around this because the agreement will say, okay, if the publisher decides not to sue, then the artist can sue. But if an artist just sues without making sure they have the right to sue, you know, as a first step underneath that publishing or agreement with their recording label, then they could run into problems pretty early on with standing. Now, now also, what about a situation which we see very often now where there's a group of young students who are in a music school or who are just in high school and they're creating and collaborating. Someone's playing lead guitar, somebody's written the lyrics, somebody's written the underlying music and someone's produced it. They don't have a publisher, they don't copyright anything, but now they hear someone who has infringed their song. How would we deal with that situation? Right. So in that situation, each contributor to the copyright would have an ownership interest in the copyright. The unique thing is that you can sue if you're just one copyright owner, often without the approval of the other copyright owners. However, if you do recover anything as a result of that suit, you've got to account to the other copyright owners and pay them their fair portion of whatever you recovered based on their ownership in the song. Very good. And that means... And this is an important thing, and I want to educate the artists who are out there, young and old. If you collaborate with anybody, if you have your program at home and you put together your song and you send it to somebody to produce it, and they add some bells and whistles to the songs, some background noises, they kind of dub your own voice over itself to create a certain effect. That is all part of the creative process, and you could bring a copyright suit and go all the way through to trial and have them say, hey, 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 I'm, I'm an original ar artist. I created part of that song. So these are issues for you to think through that when you create music, think about the people that you're creating it with and maybe 
take time, even yourselves, to agree. Someone could write, this is my song, and I'm hiring you on a work-for-hire basis, and that's a term of art, to do something for me, and I'm paying you 20 bucks, and that means that you will not claim an interest in my song. All right, now, if we have a copyrighted work and we know who has to bring the suit, the publisher or the artist or a group of people or one person because they have the right and ability to do that, and this is including songwriters, the idea that only the person that you hear in the recording can bring a copyright suit is false. Often they may not even have songwriting credit. So it is anybody who created a part of that song. Now, you have to have something called an original work. I testified before a subcommittee of Congress just a while back, and in our country, there's a, a tension going on, especially in the Ninth Circuit, which covers the, most of the states on the West Coast. The Ninth Circuit really has drifted more towards looking for plagiarism, which is the idea that the entire or a large portion of the song has to be copied. Not true. And so Congress wanted to see if, because of all the sampling of songs that goes on, if there were, if there was a kind of scientific or mathematical formula that they could create in a statute for allowing people to take small pieces of songs. So myself and a number of very, very established people in the music arena showed up, and one of the persons who was there played the first few notes of the title song from Jaws. Instantly, everybody in the room knew, after two notes, what that song was. And so it drove home the point, and this is very important for the audience to hear this. When you're walking around in your head and you devise lyrics or music, notes, you start to hum them, then you go to your piano or your keyboard, and you start to create them. If somebody takes any part of that, it's copyright infringement. And if your work is original as long as, you know, you didn't buy some notes, et cetera, from some common place where you can buy that type of stuff that's in the public domain, you didn't really create it, you bought it, and it's everyone's using it. Lauren, can you add a little something to that as to what constitutes an original work? Yeah, so, so as you touched on, the idea for what's original is supposed to be a very, very low bar. The courts are supposed to look at, okay, does this have a minimal degree of creativity? And the Jaws theme is a perfect example because it's just two notes at two different pitches held for two different lengths of time. It's a very, very small sample, but it's original enough that someone would hear it and know exactly what it is. And I'm sure even our listeners, as soon as you brought up that example, heard it in their heads because it's original enough to stick with you. And now also, if you somebody copies your lyrics but not your underlying music, that's also copyright infringement. We have a very famous case that's in the papers where we're using uh, an expert who determines where language, slang language comes from, where did it derive from. And Lauren, very quickly, maybe you can talk about the parties to our case that involves that and how that issue got teed up. Right, yeah, so we represent two songwriters who've done a lot of work in hip-hop and R&B, written a number of hit songs, you know, back in the early 2000s and, and late 90s, and some hits recently also. And their song, which was made famous by the girl group 3LW, included lyrics, the player's gonna play, hate is gonna hate, which I'm sure our listeners immediately recognize that as a Taylor Swift lyric from her song, Shake It Off. 
And the thing that the two songs really have in common is that the refrains of both of them follow the same four-part sequence describing actors engaging in an activity. And they use two of the same actors are exact same, but the formation of the lyrics, the actual sequence that they choose, is so incredibly similar. And so one of the issues that we're dealing with in the Ninth Circuit, and we were able to get a positive result there where that's not always the case, is the court looking and saying, oh, that's not original enough, despite the fact that it is original. And also she took so much of what our clients created. Yes. And by the way, and this is where, you know, I've spoken and written quite a bit. The average district court judge doesn't understand copyright law. I hate to say it. And for any judges out there from the Ninth Circuit who want to challenge me, I'll sit down with you anywhere and tell you you don't. They take a process called apportionment and allocation. If someone steals a part, a small part of your song, the law provides for that. In that, obviously, all the parts of their new song that doesn't copy your song and all their performances and marketing and their market existence and presence come into play to decide how much they have to pay you of their profits or what the statutory penalty might be. And those factors all go into play in a weighing process. The judges of the Ninth Circuit have decided that they are the experts and they throw away decisions by trained musicologists or people on the film side who are professors at USC and NYU. And they decide, I call it the Chardonnay test. They get a glass of wine, go home and say, that isn't the same. That's a small piece. That's only part of the lyrics. These songs aren't the same. And shame on them. Shame on them. And we were able to get a good ruling from the Ninth Circuit in our case where we represented a rap group against Taylor Swift. Those lyrics, we have an expert who studies the origination and derivation of language. Those terms were first used in Compton. So while Taylor Swift has grown as an artist, I don't think she's hanging around Compton you know, hanging out with uh, the folks there and picking up their lingo. And actually, it's a very important issue because I represent many artists. And the best thing for you to do is if you think maybe, you know, I had, it didn't really originate in my brain, then you just tip the hat, give them a small credit, pay them a small fee. And that's how the community of artists will, will be better off. But unfortunately, you know, we see these situations where uh, everybody wants to say, I created it. Now, if you have an original work, and you um, go forward, the first thing that's going to happen is the defendant, uh, especially if they're established, is going to file some type of motion to throw your case out. And they'll claim, they'll pound their chest, every single person who's ever copied a film, script, or someone else's music takes an arrogant position usually because their creativity and their reputation as an artist will be blemished in their mind if they admit they copied and plagiarized. And, and by the way, plagiarism is not copyright infringement, not to confuse the terms. But the point is, in my famous case where the Ozzy brothers sued Michael Bolton for copying substantial portions of Love is a Wonderful Thing, Michael Bolton went so far as to say he had never heard of a Ozzy brothers song, which was outrageous. The jury rejected him as being a credible witness, but you'll see this type of resistance. So the courts have to apply a test to decide whether your case can go forward. And there's two things you have to show. One is access. Did they have access to your music? Well, in today's world where streaming is prevalent, 
pretty much, and you don't have to show that you were there on the day that the person heard your song. There's such a thing as subconscious copying, which is the George Harrison case and the Ozzy Brothers case both established. But, you know, you have to make sure that you didn't record the song in your basement and never put it out on the Internet. And then you claim that the person stole your song. Lauren, talk a little bit about access. Yeah. So you hinted right at it there. You have to be able to show that the person who copied your work somehow knew that your work existed and was influenced by your work in creating their own. And one of the great things about the world today is there's so many ways to show that someone has access. There are so many ways for people to access music now. An artist could get their songs on the radio back in the day and you'd have to say, okay, how much was it played? Was it playing in their area? Now, People are listening to music on Spotify, on YouTube, on a bunch of different media that's giving them the opportunity and giving artists the opportunity to get their songs out there. And also there is this concept of subconscious copying, which artists should really be aware of, which is that we're not saying that you did it intentionally. You're a creator of songs and you looked at a YouTube of your friend's friend's friend who had a really cool song and it's in your head now. And oh, well, randomly, you start to put those arrangement of notes and lyrics into your song. So access is pretty easy to establish today, but it does mean that you have to show that there was some reasonable chance that the person who you allege copied some or all of your song heard your song. That's, again, because of social media and YouTube. If they have a smartphone or if they have uh, any type of computer or they listen to music in any type of terrestrial way, they, they could copy it. The courts apply a test, and I will tell you in the Ninth Circuit they don't do it correctly, that has to do with the concept of substantial similarity. And there's an objective and subjective portion of the test. Lauren, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, so what the court is supposed to do is take a look at what the alleged infringer took and how similar it is to the original work. So what they're supposed to do, like with Jaws, they're supposed to say, okay, they took those two notes, they used those two notes six times throughout the song. That's substantially similar. What a lot of courts end up doing, as you mentioned, is the Chardonnay test, where instead of looking at what they took, they look at the whole infringing work as a whole and they say, okay, well, that portion from Jaws is only used six times in the chorus. So the two works as a whole, looking at the whole Jaws theme song and the whole infringing work aren't different. Those are two different works. Instead of saying the section that you took from Jaws and the section that you put in your work are the exact same thing. Those are substantially similar. And substantial similarity. Let's put some flesh on that concept. What does it mean for something to be substantially similar? How do the courts go about describing that? Right. So they, they try to put themselves in the shoes of, of a regular person and they try to decide what is protectable and what's been taken. Is that you know the same in both works? And um, there are actual tests, and I'm pulling one up now, that I want to you know, share with the audience. Substantial similarity is a term used by all courts to describe once copying has been established the threshold where that copyright wrongfully appropriates the plaintiff's protected expression. And that gets pretty intense in terms of the different cases and how they describe it. 
although a creative work can be heavily influenced by other copyrighted material, it may not be so substantially similar to the protected piece that it violates the copyright owner's intellectual property rights. There's no formulaic rule, really, that determines whether there is a substantial similarity. Rather, the courts look at the facts of the case and the creative process involved in the creation of the work. The courts may compare patterns that exist in both works or rely on expert testimony to determine whether the works are too similar for a piece to be considered original. If the court determines that the newer work was the product of independent creation, it will not be a violation of copyright law. Now, that's a lot of words and a lot of lawyer words. But the truth is, first of all, you have to have a court that's applying the right test. If someone took Romeo and Juliet and they took a small segment and they only had the character Juliet copied in, in her persona and a few of her words, in the Ninth Circuit, they'd say that that's okay because you didn't steal the whole thing because they, they advance allocation and apportionment into the substantial similarity test and they reject all expert testimony, deeming themselves experts, which is nonsense. It's a horrible violation of the law. If you can bring your copyright suit somewhere other than the Ninth Circuit, you should. They only do this in music and film cases. They don't do it in technology cases. They apply the law correctly there. The fact of the matter is, is that if you independently created a sequence of notes that's not common or lyrics, and somebody took it, sampled it, played it, produced it, put it in part of their song, there's infringement. The question is now what, what the damages will be. So that moves me on to my next portion. And the idea of independent creation is that somebody, you know, let's say you sued somebody, they copied your song in Australia, and they proved to you that they live out in a remote area, they don't really listen to much music, and they had a group and they independently collaborated and their song came together and it had nothing to do with yours. It kind of blends in to the access issue, but it's also, I independently created this. You can tell it's all very fact-based. Now, allocation and apportionment I want to go through very quickly. I've talked about them, and that has to do with the fact that if you took, in the Isley Brothers case, you know, Bolton only took some of his song, but he added a bridge. He was a very popular artist at the time. The record company had produced his album, and he had promoted the song in concerts. So in that regard, the courts were able to say, well, we take the profits only, you only get X percent, because a lot of the factors that resulted in the profits was, was done by other people. And, you know, you can get statutory damages, which Lawrence hit on, which is as there's a range depending on it, whether it's intentional infringement or not. And for every time that the infringing song is, is used, you can get a, quite a high number. And then in some cases, you can get treble damages if it's intentional infringement, if the work was copyrighted. So now I want to talk in my closing three minutes or so on how to cost effectively litigate a copyright case. And this is very important. Uh, if you run to a lawyer and they don't know or they know or they say they know and they're, they're going to do a contingent fee, your case, they, they may botch your case. They may get it thrown out. You could get sued for malicious prosecution. Uh, it's an embarrassment to bring a case and lose it. What you should do is try to find somebody who teaches a music class and have them give you an opinion. Now, Sometimes that'll cost you a couple thousand dollars, or in most cases up to $5,000, but it's better to spend that money, uh, even if you have to borrow it from somebody, if you really think you have a serious case, to get an expert who's independent and will give you their view and sign on. When somebody comes to us, even if they're an established artist and they have a lot of money, we'll still tell them, before you pay us a penny, let us go and get a musicologist that's established who will give us an opinion on this. 
And if you have a good and strong enough opinion, you can send a demand letter to the other side and start settlement discussions. And Lauren, we've certainly done that uh, many times, correct? Yes, yes, we have. And we've also thought about launching our, ourselves at our firm, a mediation program, where if you're an artist and you don't have much money, and the other artist doesn't have much money, you both will waive the conflict and we will go get the musicologist for you and try to talk you through what a court would do. You know, the problem is it's very expensive and there's been a lot of discussion about creating a small claims court for young artists who don't have a lot of money to be able to bring their claims. But in the interim, we're trying to offer a service where someone could call us up and we could, you know, reach out to the supposed infringing artist and bring them into a process where we get a musicologist who issues an opinion, independent opinion, and we talk to parties through how to resolve their claim. And that's something very important. You know, in the closing minutes, I want to thank Lauren. Lauren, fantastic to have you on the air. Lauren Green can be reached at our firm. She can be reached. Lauren, keep your email address. Yes, my email address is lgreen, like the color, except with an E at the end, at gerardfoxlaw.com. And I'm gfox at gerardfoxlaw.com, and our website information I've given you. Look, I love my music artists, and I love people who create. And so the most important thing for you to do is to be educated about the music industry and how to protect your work. You can call us. We give free consultations at 310-441-0500, and Lauren will walk you through the process. And I'd like to say to anybody who is creating a song, Thrive on, be productive. Remember, you're creating something that could exist for ages. And Lauren, awesome. Thank you, Jerry. All right, goodbye, everybody. This is G Fox signing off. This podcast is a part of the C Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.